6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 19 through 21. Because of, his, of Jeremiah prophesying all this coming is why he's going to be denied access to the temple, we'll discover, when we get to chapter 36. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, by the way, Jeremiah is a threat to Pasher because Pasher, even though he's a priest, has also falsely assumed the office of a prophet doing his duties. And there's an analogous analogy of Amaziah that does that in Amos. But again, I don't want to get distracted chasing those things down. Let's just see what this guy Pasher now, who is uh, like number two, <clears throat> but like the chief operating officer of the of the temple structure, uh, he's uh, teed off at this guy Jeremiah for this stunt that he pulled in chapter 19. So notice what he does, verse two. Then Pasher smote Jeremiah the prophet. In other words, probably had him beaten, might be more precise and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. Now, the Benjamin gate was on the northern, it's the upper gate, the northern gate at the upper part of the temple court. Now, you and I visualize stocks as something that may not be very, very much fun, but more or less ceremonial. In this case, these stocks were designed for torture. The word in the Hebrew is ma'peket, which means causing distortion. And his ankles, wrists, and neck were in this, but in such a way as to be uncomfortable. And, of course, obviously beaten in all of this. So it's, it's, it's not just a ceremonial thing. It's public, of course, and there's humiliation involved. But there's actually, apparently, in, in the Hebrew, the implication is that this was uh, painful. Verse 3. And it came to pass on the next day, it was, Jeremiah's in this one day, that Pasher brought him brought forth Jeremiah out of the stocks. And um, I want you to see how impressed Jeremiah was with by you know being uh, subservient to this uh, display of power. Jeremiah says unto him, The Lord hath not called thy name Pasher, which uh, there's some doubt as to what it really means, but it may it may mean prosperity. I forget exactly what the term could mean. But he says, But your name is Megor. Misabib. And what that means is terror on every side. In other words, Jeremiah says that your name isn't Pasher. It's Mr. Terror all around. He's giving him a, uh, he's nailing him with a, a nickname. Now, kind of a small point I was very interested is that this phrase, Megor uh, Misabib, which shows up in the Hebrew in Jeremiah, it says the, the commentators point out that it occurs five times in Jeremiah. That happens to be wrong. There's another place that occurs in Lamentations once also. So how many times does this phrase appear? Six, exactly what you'd expect. Right? So I think that's kind of interesting. But anyway, for those of you that are mystics, uh, I suppose some of you aren't really taking that like I am. It's, that's probably a blessing. 
For this, uh, verse 4, For this saith the Lord, Behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and thine eyes shall behold it. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive into Babylon, and shall slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the strength of the city, and all its labors, and all its precious things, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah will I give into the hand of their enemies, who shall spoil them and take them and carry them to Babylon. And thou, Pasher, and all who dwell in thine house shall go into captivity. Thou shalt come to Babylon, and there thou shalt die, and shalt be buried there thou and all thy friends to whom thou hast prophesied lies. Now, there's more to hear than just the fact he's a false prophet. Pasher was a priest. He wasn't supposed to prophesy. God very diligently separates the role of prophet, priest, and king, except in one person in history. Only one person in history unites the role of prophet, priest, and king. And who is that? Jesus Christ. That's right. And you and I are in him, so there's a revelation application where if you are kings and priests, it's a very unique group of people. Only one group of people are kings and priests, and that's you and I because we are in Jesus Christ, and that's a whole other issue. Uh, we'll get into here. But Pasher is a priest who has assumed the office of prophet and has prophesied lies. And uh, he beats up Jeremiah, puts him in the stocks for a day, tortures him, next day turns him loose. And Jeremiah, rather than being humble and quiet and, and uh, going on, he makes this speech on behalf of the Lord that we've just read, that Pasher is going to get his. And uh, so... By the way, Pasher also probably was the head of the pro-Egypt party in the area, in Judah. So that's uh, another um, uh, issue. Now, incidentally, in verse 4, by the way, is the first mention, if you will, of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, as the conqueror of Judah. And that causes us to believe that this whole thing occurs prior to the Battle of Karshemesh. That's why the announcement in chapter 19 and this uh, incident in chapter 20 may be uh, at or just prior to the Battle of Karshemesh, in which Nebuchadnezzar is um, um, uh, his major final super victory against the Egyptians that, uh, that makes Babylon the number one world power in that area at that time. It also happens that uh, while he's laying siege to the first siege to Jerusalem, that his father, Nabopolassar, dies, and that makes the crown prince, he, he returns to Babylon to take the throne. Uh, that, of course, then that first deportation of the first siege is where Daniel and his friends uh, get taken. It's the second siege that uh, I think it is that uh, Ezekiel and Mordecai, those people get taken. And the third siege is when the city is leveled. Nineteen years from between the first and the third siege. It's a period of, you know, obviously great strain and trouble for Jerusalem. And of great interest to us, but I don't want to get into timing yet. Before we get through Jeremiah, I'll try to put together for you what very well may be one of the most dramatic prophecies, second only perhaps uh, uh, to the 70-week prophecy, the very fact that the, the 2,484 years, two months, and three-day thing that links the first and third siege of Nebuchadnezzar to the May 14, 48 announcement of the State of Israel and the June 67 uh, uh, placement of the city of Jerusalem in the Star of David. It's possible. It's complicated and technical, but I'll take you through it later when we get into some more other chronological, chronological issues that uh, there is a very, very literal fulfillment uh, that's been 
witnessed in your lifetime and mine, and there's much more to come. So we'll get into that when we get a little deeper into Jeremiah. Uh, Pasher, by the way, is in fact exiled, and uh, Zephaniah replaces him. So another Pasher is going to show up in our text, but it's not this guy. This guy uh, gets his comeuppance as Jeremiah predicted. Okay. Now, um, for the next few verses here, we're going to find the last of Jeremiah's so-called confessions. This is Jeremiah's going to lay out his heart a bit before the Lord. Uh, our, the main insight here is to recognize the reality of this man, his feelings, and his, his just candor in pouring out his guts uh, before the Lord. Verse 7, Jeremiah, you know, shares with the Lord his heart. But don't misread his words. In the English, you can misunderstand what he's saying very easily. Verse 7, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and thou hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spoke, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me, and a derision daily. And he goes on. But before, I go, before we go any further, let's, let's deal with a couple of things. He says, thou hast deceived me. Does God deceive? No. The word there is uh, pata. It's, it almost carries more like the idea of being seduced. A more precise way to say it is you overpersuaded me. In other words, if you go back, the Lord told him it's going to be a tough time. He's sort of saying, Lord, you didn't tell me the half of it. That's really what he's saying. He's not saying the Lord cheated him or deceived him in the sense of defrauding him. That's not the thought. And in the English, it, it carries the wrong idea. And of course, obviously, something there are passages like this where you know uh, people who don't know the Scripture and probably don't want to know the Scripture will seize upon this and say, uh, see, God deceives you. Well, that's nonsense. That's uh, laboring the text uh, and, and really trying to make something of what's at the, uh, a, a clumsy choice of translation. But uh, the, the concept here, Jeremiah is pouring out his guts even if that's what he said, it's Jeremiah talking. God didn't deceive Jeremiah, nor is that really what Jeremiah is getting across. He's just saying, um, you know, boy, did you talk me into something, you know. That's sort of the flavor of it. Oh, Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I has prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocked me, for since I spoke, I cried out and cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Poor Jeremiah, he never publicly winces at declaring God's word. Privately, he's really upset. Okay? Because it ain't fun, you know? Verse 9, then, he, then, then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more of his name. There was, Jeremiah was going to just shut up, right? But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not refrain. See, every time Jeremiah opens his mouth publicly, he catches, he catches it. So he's certainly not going to deny the Lord, but he tried to shut up, but he can't. It's burning inside him. It has to come out. This man is on fire for the Lord. He almost is, he almost gets the impression that he is unwillingly articulating God's word, because he knows as he says it, he's going to get beat up. Does he ever refrain? No. He tries. He can't. Verse 10. 
For I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side. Report, say they, and we will report it. All my friends watched for my fall, saying, Perhaps he will be enticed, and we shall prevail against him, and we shall take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty terrible one. Therefore my persecutors shall stumble, and they shall not prevail, and they shall be greatly ashamed, for they shall not prosper. Their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten." But, O Lord of hosts, who testest the righteous and seest the heart of them and the mind, let me see thy vengeance on them, for unto thee have I opened my cause. Sing unto the Lord, praise ye the Lord, for he hath delivered the soul of the poor from the hand of the evildoers. Isn't verse 13 an interesting shift of gears? You say, well, gee, that sounds awfully inconsistent. No, it's just honest. Just honest. Jeremiah, it's sort of like keeping a journal. He's pouring out his guts, saying, Lord, you know, this is not fun. I'm getting beat up. But before he even finishes his thought, he praises God uh, for delivering him. Uh, he has delivered, me, uh, delivered the soul of the poor from the hand of the evildoers. Here, in spite of his pain and his frustration, and his apprehensions, he praises God because he acknowledges, no, God really does deliver me. In all of this, we have a grateful heart. And I think I've said this to this group before, but for some reason of, of recent weeks, I somehow have been extremely mindful of this concept of gratitude. And I'm just fascinated with uh, being a father, some lessons the Lord has put on my heart lately. When my kids disobey me, I get upset, right? When I disobey God, he gets upset. When the kids disobey me, I punish them for their correction and learning. And when I disobey God, he, maybe not often enough in my case, punishes or corrects me. He's very gentle. But the point is, my disobedience invokes a response on his part that's corrective, right? Something very interesting, when my kids are ungrateful, I can't do anything but feel pain. One of the most painful things I do as a father is suffer in gratitude. Okay, no big deal. But it blew me away not long ago to realize the lesson there. When my kids are ungrateful, I can't do anything. I can't say, you know, I can't make them grateful. I can't get upset in the classical way. I just feel pain. And it blew me away. Isn't that what I do to my father? When I disobey him, he can correct me. But when I'm ungrateful to him, all I do is cause him pain. That gets to me. Because I look back. Of all lives that I know, I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world to use it in the vernacular. God has blessed me all my life, professionally and with an incredible woman and a wonderful family and all kinds of things. And I've been presumptuous and selfish and ungrateful to my father for that. And I look back staggered at the pain I've caused him through what? Through my ingratitude. My I've been very disobedient. He takes care of that, and Jesus Christ has taken care of that at the cross. You know, we all know that. What about my ingratitude? The whole concept that I can cause pain to the God of the universe, that blows me away. I've thought a lot about that. 
And I'm convinced it's true. And I'm convinced that that's why we call him father. Because he's our father. In every sense of that term. So this idea of, I just have, I'm sorry to get digressed here a little bit, but I'm on this gratitude kick. Because I just feel, um, a, 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 guilt isn't quite the right term, but it comes close for the ways that I have been a source of pain to my father. Anyway, verse 14. Cursed be the day on which I was born. Let not the day on which my mother bore me be blessed. Okay? Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A male child is born unto thee, making him very glad. And let the man... Let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew, meaning Sodom and Gomorrah, and repented not, and let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noontide, because he slew me not from the womb, and that my mother might have been my grave and her womb to be always great with me. Why came I forth out of the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame? Unhappy guy. <laughs> Don't take him too seriously. This is just his rhetorical way of describing how unhappy he is. I wish I'd never been born. I don't know about you, but I've said that. May God forgive me. Because there's no excuse for me to get that depressed, although I have in the past. And there's no excuse for it. Then Jeremiah is depressed. He's unhappy. Now, does he really mean that the... This is just his Jewish way of saying, may the guy that brought the message to my... You know, the whole idea, you always reward someone bringing good news. And there's the old cliche, you shoot the bear of bad news kind of thing. Well, the guy that told my father he had a male child, may he be cursed. Does he mean that literally? Of course not. How do we know? He doesn't curse his parents here. He's using those idioms that in his Jewish uh, mind are ways of just expressing how unhappy he is. Why doesn't he curse his parents for bringing him to the earth? Because that was forbidden by the law of Moses. He does not curse. Moses condemned that in Exodus 21, verse 17 and elsewhere. Okay? So he's not really cursing. Certainly not his parents, because that's not appropriate. This, incidentally, is very parallel to the words of Elijah. Remember after Mount Carmel? And Jezebel. Elijah goes through a period where he wishes he hadn't been born. He goes in a big sulk, right? And that's in 1 Kings 19. You can chase that down on your own as sort of a parallel idea. And this is nothing more. It's very vivid in terms of Jeremiah's heart, how upset he is. It's nothing more than that. He's not really calling down curses on other people. He's using that as a, a very Jewish figure of speech. So don't, I wouldn't, you know, it's a rhetorical candor on Jeremiah's way of saying how he, how he really feels, okay? Now, where that brings us to uh, chapter 21, and um, this actually happens to be the start of a major section. Uh, the first uh, 19 chapters have a certain style, verses 21 through 25. It, in some respects, may sound much as the same thing, but you may decide, notice a change of style because there's going to be more references to times, places, and persons. So there's going to be, it's going, the action's going to pick up here a little bit, and so uh, hang in there. Uh, chapters 21, 22, and 23 are a series of messages delivered under four kings. Some people call this section the comments on the kings. 
and they're not necessarily in chronological order, as I've warned you before. So we're don't 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 get concerned about that, if you will. Uh, chapter twenty-one, for a lot of reasons, appears to have been delivered about five eighty-eight B.C. So it's more recent than some of the stuff we've been having. Uh, the Babylonians are advancing on Jerusalem, but they haven't actually been besieging it at close range yet. They will about to, in, in, in about 587, 86, they'll siege it and level it. So that's the big, that's the third siege of Nebuchadnezzar. It's the brutal one, and that's forthcoming, and we're going to sense it get, you know, happening here. This is going to occur in about the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, which uh, of an 11-year reign. The siege is going to show up shortly and last about a year and a half that they're sieged and slaughtered and resort to cannibalism and all of that stuff. Chronologically, chapter 21 falls between chapters 37 and 38, so uh, I think it's very laborious if you really want to try and get this all chronological, and it's certainly not clear of controversy. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll give you some notes as we go, but I don't think, we're obviously not making that a, a major emphasis. Now, Zedekiah, the guy we're going to talk about here, was uh, the, the last king, if you will. He was a vassal king that was put on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar. You'll find this in 2 Kings 24. He was the uncle of Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin we're going to talk more about in the next chapter. They're not in chronological order, but Jehoiachin was that really bad guy. Well, Jehoiachin was, well, they're all bad. They're really bad in this. But Jehoiachin is so bad that God is going to pronounce a curse on him that is unique and of extreme interest to you and I for reasons I'll come to when we get there. But he is displaced, and uh, uh, his uncle is um, uh, put on the throne in, in, instead. Now, Zedekiah likes Jeremiah. Zedekiah is really not as bad as Jehoiachin was. Jehoiachin or Jehoiakim, predecessors. Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin were both sons of Josiah, so they were eligible in that sense. Zedekiah was Jehoiachin's uncle, but Nebuchadnezzar, when he gets fed up with the, the, the goings-on, takes care of them, puts them in slavery, and takes the uncle and um, puts him in charge. One of Zedekiah's problems is the Jews themselves never really accepted him as a king because he's put on the throne by uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. That was the second siege. The first siege, Jehoiakim was put in charge. Nebuchadnezzar goes back to take over Babylon. There's a rebellion. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's allies in the second uh, uh, siege take Jehoiachin, take him into captivity, and put um, Zedekiah on the throne, take Ezekiel and some others also captive. In the third siege, when Zedekiah doesn't cut it, Nebuchadnezzar really has a belly full and levels the place. But Zedekiah's power came from Nebuchadnezzar. The Jews never really accepted him. The Jehoiachin um, uh, was taken captive in 597 B.C. and carried off. They always expected him to come back, so they never really ex accepted Zedekiah. And they thought that Jehoiachin was their true king, and they expected him to return. And uh, we'll find that in chapter 28 when we get there. But uh, Now, Zedekiah, though, is basically would like to be nicer to Jeremiah. His problem is his second-in-command Hated, it, hated Jeremiah, so Zedekiah is weak and vacillating and therefore damaging. And one of the things we learn, out, learn throughout all history, secular history as well, is, is that weak men hurt people. You can think in terms of this country, too, where we've had weak leadership and how uh, empires have fallen because of it. 
And uh, weak men who have good intentions but are not strong and show, don't show good leadership can cause slaughters and tragedy, unfortunately. Now, chapters 21 through 29 that we're, the section we're going into is going to be more important to you and I than some of the other chapters because they lay the groundwork for a period of time which in the Scripture is called the times of the Gentiles. In Luke chapter 21, verse 24, the Lord uses that phrase, speaking of the times of the Gentiles. And those times start with Nebuchadnezzar and they conclude with a guy that's probably alive today, running around somewhere. So, the times of the Gentiles, an interesting period of time prophetically, and um, that um, particularly interest to us. Okay, let's move in. Chapter 21, verse 1. The word uh, which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, when King Zedekiah sent unto him Pasher the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah the son of some other unpronounceable name, uh, the priest saying, Inquire, I pray thee, etc. And again, don't don't miss don't confuse this pasture with the one we read about a couple of chapters ago. This is a different or the last chapter this is a different guy. So it, it it carries it's either a common name or more than likely a, a title of sorts. Anyway, uh, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah during this reign. He says, Inquire, I pray thee, of the Lord for oh, by the way, a significant period of time. Something more than ten years, maybe fifteen years, occurred between these two chapters. The pasture before is long gone, different deal. This is Zedekiah. This is before the, the big one. This is, this is as I said, the, in the ninth year of an 11-year rule. So this is two years before. Yeah, it's, in fact, probably about 17 years after, the, after chapter 20. So just because they're adjacent chapters does not have anything to do with the chronology. This is, Jeremiah is just a collection of Majora's, my, Jeremiah's messages put together by his scribe, his secretary, by the name of Baruch. Okay, moving on. Uh, verse 2, inquire, I pray thee of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, on here, you know what's Kedrezer? Uh, incidentally, most of us know him as Nebuchadnezzar, and that's probably wrong. Um, his actual name is believed to be Nebuchadrezzar, Nabu Kapuri Usar, which means Nebu, do thou protect thy crown. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.